1: Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. It's Monday, so it's World War II day, and we are thoroughly, thoroughly spoilt today, aren't we, Merrin?
0: We are indeed. We have with us a gentleman who has been um, gracious enough to, to come and talk to us before. We have former war correspondent Christian Jennings, who has been working as a journalist for years um, on international current affairs. He's been published by The Economist, Reuters, Wired, Daily Telegraph host of other other great titles, but we know him best as a best-selling author of books looking particularly at the intricacies of the Second World War. And I have on the bookshelf behind me a copy of At War on the Gothic Line. I have on the bookshelf in front of me, I have uh, Flashpoint Trieste. And today we are going to talk about, um, Christian, your book, The Third Right is Listening which is all about German code-breaking between 1939 and 1945. And this is the complete opposite, isn't it, of everything that that comes to mind when we think about code-breaking in the Second World War. It's
2: the exact opposite story from what most of us know at the moment, which is reasonably and understandably centred around the cryptanalytical successes of mainly the british and the americans uh almost entirely centered around the the phenomenal successes and the staggering story of bletchley park and ultra predominantly centered around their successes in intercepting and cracking the codes used on the german enigma machine i went to the other side of the channel and thought what what were the Germans doing Mm. like all very good ideas it wasn't mine it was uh, prompted by a much much better historian than me Sir Max Hastings who wrote in one of his books it remains one of the largely unanswered questions of World War II why a regime is technologically advanced as the Third Reich um, could not better the allies or match them in code breaking and in cryptanalysis and I thought,
1: drag to a ball for a historian, isn't it?
2: It absolutely is. And I thought, as I've said before, I bet somebody's done this book. I bet somebody's really looked into those archives and found out what the Germans were up to. No. And I looked and saw nobody yeah. had.
0: Yeah. yeah. And, and the Germans have formed, don't they, on, on not being um, the greatest co-breakers? Because even before we get to the Second World War, they have had their, their their time, as it were, during the First World War. Um,
2: they Their successes, their considerable successes in the Second World War, were based upon their considerable failings in the First World War. Yeah. In the First World War, they relied on code books, which were captured, stolen, intercepted by the Allies or you know, by the Russians who who gave them to pass them on to the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy and British uh, the British nascent code breaking operation in the First World War cracked them. And the Germans learned from this lesson, which was do not reply rely, sorry, on codes written down in books, go to machines. When a German man called Arthur Scherbius came along in the nineteen twenties And said that he had invented a machine that he called Enigma, which can be used to send complex technological information, like from banks about money transfers, Hmm. in covert ways with ever-changing codes. To cut a very long story short, the Germans looked at it, thought, no, it's too expensive for us. We shouldn't be rearming at the moment. Oops, but we do need it. And finally, ultimately, the German Navy, the Kriegsmarines Intelligence Gathering Service, the Baerbachtungers Dienst, under their star codebreaker, Wilhelm Tranau, himself a former signals officer from World War I, said, we need to go for this machine. We mustn't rely on codebooks. Trano himself, who in many ways was the German equivalent of Alan Turing, Trano had been a signals officer on a German Navy ship in the First World War. One night he was on radio duty in the in the signals room and a message came in from another battleship. And just for his own amusement almost, he went off and cracked it. Went to his superior office and said, hey, look what I've just done. They were extremely um, unamused by it and said he should never get involved in anything to do with signals ever again. Um, he didn't listen to them, went off and was recruited to form the German Navy's cryptanalytical service um, in the 20s and early 1930s. So the point being, the Germans learnt from their failures in, in World War I and the main thing they did is based themselves around machines, leaving the Allies, particularly the British, in the 1930s, still dependent on code books, very particularly the Royal Navy.
1: So let's get to the shape you decided um, to use for this book. And where did you get the information from?
2: Things in life that I discovered when I was an investigative journalist in countries in the balkans in africa in europe it's normally there it's knowing as um a german journalist once said to me most things are there it's knowing where to look and knowing how to look for them and i thought that a regime like germany firstly they would have kept records Everything would have been written down. There were 10 German crypt analytical, code intercepting, code making, code breaking agencies the SS, the Foreign Office, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, even the Post Office. And the Germans, are, as we know, they're meticulous, they keep records. And I thought, where will these records be? So I went, um, I read a few books, I looked online and of course you discover that the majority of it is in uh, the national security agency archives in the united states it's in the national archives in in great britain and the actual documents themselves about these code-breaking agencies of the germans the majority of them were possessed by the americans and what had happened is as the war was coming to an end in 1945, the Americans, in particular backed up by the British, wanted to know the successes and technological advances of the Germans in four particular areas. Um, They wanted to know about their nuclear technology, their rockets, their jets, and they wanted to know about code-breaking and cryptanalysis. So... TICOM, the Target Intelligence Committee was formed. A bunch of officers, men, NCOs, some of them given a bit of training at Bletchley Park, some of them reservists, technical officers, were sent into Germany in the dying, the dying days of the war and the first days of peace with their brief being, find the people who worked for these Um, cryptanalytical organizations find their documents find the machinery what did they know what did they do that we didn't the british particularly had one great big enormous question mark hanging over their head which is did they know we'd cracked enigma or not
0: okay so that that's their question and to some extent we kept the success of Bletchley quiet didn't we
2: our ability to to keep the secret of Bletchley Park was just one part of its staggering successes the more people knew about the secret of Bletchley Park and what the British were achieving with their inroads into Enigma codings in a way the more secret it became. The British were, as I said in the book, were were so keen not to compromise the cryptanalytical goose that kept laying the the golden egg of of Enigma that they in sometimes kept the information from their own senior leadership, their own senior commanders who could have used it. Um, And they were desperately keen that, obviously, the Germans shouldn't find out that Enigma had been compromised. And so they were very careful not to put into any of their own messages any information that they might have gathered from um, from intercepting thousands and thousands and reading thousands and thousands of Enigma-based messages. One of the the... The failings or not so much a failing, but they turned a slightly blind eye to the fact that the Germans themselves could and obviously would have been trying to break into British codes as well. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: The British thinking went went that if they don't know that Enigma is compromised and the Germans to a certain extent did, but didn't do anything about it. Then they can't be reading into our messages, which are being enciphered on much less technologically advanced um, equipment. The difference being, though, is that the the British, the Americans, well, the British at Bletchley Park and the Americans at uh, Arlington Hall in the States had essentially. Developed their crypt analytical capabilities, capturing enigma machines from German weather ships, from captured German submarines, from frigates, et cetera, et cetera. It all started as war got going and the British took off in a real hurry at a hundred, you know, a hundred meter sprint led by people like Alan Turing. The Germans had been preparing for war for 15 years before 1939. And Wilhelm Trano and his naval intercept team and cryptanalytical team had been happily plodding along breaking the British Royal Navy's codes from the mid-1930s. And to the extent that when war opened, the Germans in 1939 knew where a large percentage of the Royal Navy's ships were at any given day, at any point on Earth. Um which they did by surprisingly pedestrian means in in some ways the British merchant Navy would register each ship as as often as possible sometimes once a day would make a report into London that it would appear in the Lloyd's register saying that uh, the merchant vessel so-and so is in Athens today is in Piraeus. Um, the British Royal Navy would send in position reports where they were, what they were doing. And because there were so many ships in the Royal Navy, and because the messages they tended to send tended to be, like most human communication, based upon the same repetitive conveyance of the same basic information – particularly naval terminology, port, starboard, torpedo, battleship, um, frigate, corvette. The Germans had an awful lot of cribs, as they called them, into repetitive messages. And they had a lot of time as well. The Royal Navy wasn't at war in the 1930s. And Wilhelm Tranau and his team from the Kriegsmarine got going, I would say, in about thirty-five to 1936 piecing together like an exhaustive meticulous jigsaw the code books of the Royal Navy and the Royal Navy used used several codes and several code books um, linked into the uh, the British Merchant Navy's codes the Royal Navy cipher the government telegraph code Interchangeable codes that were used by both the Merchant Navy and the Royal Navy to just to report in to home base on a very, very, very frequent basis. And Wilhelm Tranau and the, the Kriegsmarine cryptanalysts were thinking the Royal Navy will change these codes as soon as war break, breaks out. But they didn't. And then they didn't. And then they didn't
0: so that's interesting because when we think about the 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 equilibrium of humor endeavor whether you are british or german or italian or, or, or whatever nationality you are if you're taking part in second world war it's not a linear exercise everybody's trying to get the upper hand the british have definitely got their foot in the door when it comes to developing cyber um cipher technology and Equally, the, the, the Germans are making advances. When we hear about the popular narrative, we, we tend to focus on um, some of, I mean, the the, the the great example that comes to mind is in the Turing film, where the decision is not to surface the fact they've realized that a, a, a ship is about to be um, attacked. And this whole moral dilemma comes forward. But if we move away from the Atlantic, if we move away from the Germans and how they are looking at those Lloyd's register messages, what successes were there among, um, what? what successes were there for the Germans among, um, you know, break, breaking codes that gave them positions on land or elsewhere?
2: A huge variety. Um, Incidentally, just picking up very quickly on the the example from the Imitation Game, from uh, cool. about Turing, about the ship that gets um, that is allowed to be torpedoed so that the information about Enigma should not be compromised. Mm-hmm. There's a bit in the third Reich is listing my book in which um, I reconstruct an attack on a convoy only through the signals sent and received by one one German U boat. Wow, um, and that the German U-boat knows that um, the the Kriegsmarine back in France have um, have been able to crack into the Royal Navy code, and this uh, German U-boat is stalking a Canadian a Canadian destroyer, um, the Ottawa, which it sinks, and we have it seen from the point of view of the officers on and some of the men on on the Ottawa itself, and. The Germans know that they've cracked the the Allied codes, um, and the Germans n- don't know that the Allies have cracked theirs. Oh. The Canadian destroyer is is sunk, the crew are largely rescued, and when they come to dry land, the captain, a Canadian, who was as a result immensely pissed off for the rest of his life about it, is told by a senior British naval officer that oh by the way, um, yeah, the Germans were reading all your signals, so sorry about that. Please don't tell anybody. Um, and he waited until just before he died and then wrote a very, very, very lengthy article about it in a rather um, hard-to-find Canadian nautical magazine, which I found. Um, the, the point being is that um, uh, the Allies didn't know largely that the Germans were reading theirs, and the Germans largely didn't know that the Allies were reading their codes as well. Yeah. So it was like a five it was like a sort of sequilineal game of um, of maritime chess. But just returning onwards then to the other, um, you know, the Kriegsman mean, the German Navy and what their U boat teams were doing was just was just one part of the picture. Yeah. The Germans had uh been forming in the 1930s um large cryptanalytical agencies attached to each of their different departments of the armed forces one of the main ones were the Luftwaffe the Luftwaffe under uh, the tutelage of some civilian staff and some uh, you know air force staff realized very quickly in the 1930s that uh, As radio technology developed, so the ability to read into it, crack it and pull messages out of the sky, as one Luftwaffe officer described it, was going to become paramount. So they set up a whole series of radio intercept stations in places like Bavaria, Northern Germany and the Black Forest, where they were not just picking up French signals, Spanish signals, Greek signals, signals from North Africa they could do the whole mediterranean as well anywhere that was remotely allied to uh, the third reich in the 1930s you would find that german army german air force german navy cryptanalytical intercept staff would arrive and help them um, build a network of intercept stations. When Franco welcomed Luftwaffe uh, technicians and personnel into Spain to uh, help him in, in the Spanish Civil War, the Luftwaffe sent a whole series of teams who operating under civilian cover set up a whole series of listening stations as far south in Spain as Seville. They were based on cattle ranch outside Seville in civilian clothes under rather thin cover um, where they were intercepting and picking up Royal Navy signals from the Mediterranean, off North Africa, Gibraltar and... This helped the, the Luftwaffe, for instance, um, work out what the British and the French air forces who uh, didn't want to get involved in the Spanish Civil War, but they were deploying aircraft, shuttling them around the Mediterranean, sending lots of signals. So the codes of the British Royal Air Force and how they operated, the Luftwaffe had been having a really successful go at them by 1937 and 1938 similarly the and and so when war began for instance and the bombing campaign of, um, of germany started i mean in the you know the opening weeks of world war ii in 1930 in autumn 1939 when a wellington squadron went on a bombing raid of the docks in bremen i think it was um, one of them was shot down on the way back from Germany. It crashed and the Germans discovered a series of, printed out, what were called psycho, S-Y-K-O cards, which were used on the Royal Air Force's psycho encoding machines. And from this, the Luftwaffe concentrated on working out when Royal Navy, oh, sorry, excuse me, Royal Air Force Squadrons would take off from Britain um, on their way to bombing raids into Germany, that was one of their their initial successes. The uh, the German here, the German army under its uh, cryptanalytical agency, which was known as OKW, Chi, short for Commander der Wehrmacht, Stella, again had some absolutely stellar, interesting, exceptional cryptanalytical staff. All like Alan Turing, deeply individual idiosyncratic, quite eccentric people who had been mathematicians, astronomers, journalists, technicians, people who had seen the advent of radio technology and knew that anything made by man could be broken by man. And the German army, for instance, they knew they were going to invade Western Europe and they wanted to know what the British expeditionary force and what French knew about what they were going to do so they broke into the French army's codes they realised that there were lots and lots and lots of code books available the Gestapo was involved in this they wanted to get their hands on the existing code books and code technology of not just their enemies but their allies and not just their allies but all neutral countries they were, from the beginning of the war onwards, they were either successfully or trying to or attempting to or failing to break into the naval, military, air force, diplomatic and domestic security services codes of 41 different countries simultaneously. And they picked up this information, I'm, for instance, with the French codes. The Gestapo were told, Burgle your way, bribe, beat your way, kill, (laughs) get, get hold of this information. So by the time it came to invade France, the Germans had worked out a lot of the French order of battle that was waiting for them and through French Transmissions with the British and their ability to read in some of British codes, they'd gone at the problem from from both ends, so they had significant amounts of information about what the French uh, order of battle was before they even invaded France. Oh, and
1: uh, Cairo.
2: Ah, uh, Cairo was um, Cairo. I think was one of the Germans' most stellar performances in code breaking and cryptanalysis yeah. in uh, in the Second World War. September 1941 America has yet to come into the war Pearl Harbor hasn't happened the American defense attaché at the embassy in Rome has in his safe in the Rome embassy the codes used by military attachés from embassies worldwide the Italian SIM the Servizio Intelli- Informazione Militare the military intelligence service Go off and burgle the american embassy it was quite easy for them the head of uh, italian military intelligence had the keys to every embassy in rome apart from the russians so they let themselves in during the hours of night opened the safe took out the code book photographed it and put it back the americans were none the wiser they passed on some of it to the germans the germans also received pages of this code book via the hungarians from another diplomatic source as well the italians started breaking it the german uh, army crypto started breaking it as well the italians didn't know but the germans had broken their naval codes and their military codes as well so listening to to what they were doing too the italians conveniently had also in very, very short order, the Italians were extremely good at cryptanalysis and broken the Royal Navy's codes. So the Germans often thought, why duplicate efforts if our allies, the happy Italians, have done it very, very well? We'll just piggyback on their successes and not tell them. Um, and so this American military attache's code book was used by the defence attache at the American Embassy in Cairo, a man called Lieutenant Colonel Bonner Fellers. And Bonner Fellers' role at the American Embassy in Cairo was several things, one of which was to provide estimates back to Washington of how the British were doing in their fighting against the Germans and the Italians, specifically against the Africa Corps, what they needed in terms of material support, how successful they were being, whether America should... um, come in on the British side, particularly in the fighting in North Africa. This was after Pearl Harbor, after America had joined the war. And so what Colonel Fellers did on an almost daily basis was go off and see the 8th Army, see the British Army, see the Australians, see the Indians in the desert, tanks, artillery, what they had, what they didn't have. And he would transmit the whole lot very very frequently back to washington using this code book which the germans had cracked and it went on and on and on for eight months the entire operational layout of particularly uh, particularly the british but also the australians in north africa was being moved back to washington the germans um, were cracking it reading it it was They were handling the intelligence, the intercepted signals, the reading of them, the cracking of the codes, and its transmission back to North Africa faster than they were operating, or as fast as with the U-boats. And Rommel boasted one day, said, "Yes, by lunchtime every day, I knew exactly where the Eighth Army had been the night before." And this was an example of where they not just had the ability. To read and codes and gather information, they had the tactical and strategical ability with material and men to put it into effect, so it fundamentally uh, affected Rommel 's ability to fight, deploy his men move move towards Egypt in North Africa. It was a kind of perfect storm of how code breaking matched to a commander who will use it to his best possible advantage who has the tactical and strategic and operational ability to do so because he's got lots of tanks and men and the perfect thing which is a very verbose um enemy like colonel fellas in the in the american embassy in Cairo, sending gold dust information on a regular basis in a code that is compromised doing it regularly and For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Borough purchase at borough.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at borough.com slash ACAST. Oh
1: dear. <laughs> and then you've got on your list as well of other successes. you put um Barbarossa.
2: Barbarossa was a more simple thing for the... Uh, for the Germans, because they deployed a, a combination of Luftwaffe and army uh, cryptanalysts and it signals intelligence officers against the Russians before the invasion of um, the invasion of of Russia. Um, and the easy thing about the Red Army and uh, particularly the NKV, the interior Ministry's uh, uh, troops and police was that Stalin's regime reported so compulsively so comprehensively and in such a paranoid manner on itself, to itself frequently that it told it was telling the outside world entirely where it was and what it was doing um, and it was very easy for the Germans to work out uh, where the uh, where the Russians had deployed their troops along um, respective borders where before before barbarossa began and the Russians were very very slow to change their their codes and the Germans continued reading them cracking them um breaking them using them until the very finite point where they started losing in russia where however good the intelligence they had was It didn't stop the massive superiority in men and tanks that the Red Army had. It was a very good lesson, and you can have the best possible intelligence gained by the most technologically amazing feats of cryptanalysis, but it doesn't really help you if you don't have the means to put it into practice
1: which is what I really want. I want to come on to this with you. So they capture the code books of American parachute divisions in Normandy. Why can't they translate this intelligence advantage into strategic success?
2: The only successes uh, they could turn, I mean, this came from, it was on the 7th of, uh, 7th of June, 1944, the code books, the encoding uh, Books for the um, American encryption device, the M209 Hegelin encryption device as issued to paratroopers from the 101st and the 82nd Airborne Division. Their signals code books for the entire week after D-Day was found floating inside an abandoned landing craft on a river uh, just to the west of Omaha and Utah beaches. Um, Germans captured them. They'd already broken into American codes that were used on this encryption device as far back as Sicily in 1943. Um, and so they could find out exactly what the 101st and the 82nd Airborne Divisions were doing. It allowed them to reinforce the town of Caronta um, with, with Paratroopers before an American counterattack on it. Apart from that, it didn't give them any permissible advantage at all because they didn't have enough petrol to put in the, the armoured divisions that weren't close enough to to be able to do anything about it anyway. The men that might have been able to advance to make uh, operational take operational benefit from this these these cracked codes were pinned down by superior ap- power um, from the sky anyway it was an absolute um, it, it was an absolute perfect example of you having the best intelligence in the world and if you can't put it into effective use then then it's useless as you know the, normandy was a very 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 good example of how the german successes in cryptanalysis um stood them in massively good stead when they were winning when they started losing it didn't really help them that much the allies even when they were you know they, they were losing in like in the battle of the atlantic in 1940 41 42 the allies got bigger and better at doing it by being better and bigger and the more enormous the Allies and the successes of Bletchley Park became, the more they managed to keep, keep the secret. They kept a secret because essentially they were working in a democracy with a unified monolinear chain of command where everybody was doing as much as possible the same thing for the same ends. The Germans had 10 different agencies working under a dictatorship where the the person at the top of the chain of command, um, the delusional Hitler, was as much an obstacle to German successes as Allied codebreakers were. When Hitler, at um, at the end of the war, uh, at the Yalta Conference, Stalin, Roosevelt and and Churchill were deciding the way in which the post-war world would would be and how the closing phases of world war ii would look like the turks had intercepted signals from the soviets from yalta which in turn were being cracked by the hungarians the hungarian military intelligence apparatus had an ss crypto liaison officer based with them who were buying information off the hungarians giving it back to germany the germans thereby knew exactly what the Russians pretty much wanted to do after Yalta. I followed the the, the trail of these signals back to the moment where they're actually pre- presented to um, General Yodel and to Hitler himself. And somewhere in the in the middle of what I think came to thousands if not just under 10,000 20,000 something documents I went through in several different languages wow. there was just that that moment where I found Hitler's reaction annotated in pencil on one particular piece of paper mm. where the head of his army code breakers have said this listen, listen we've got this amazing breakthrough and Hitler and his chief of staff just turned around and said, Listen, you know, you complete idiot, get yourself a new job, you're no good at this one. So they were screwed. Um, they could deliver the finest intelligence product there was, but if Hitler and the upper echelons of the Third Reich didn't treat it properly, then it was useless.
0: That's that's incredible. And the, the idea that that that's benefit couldn't be used it, i mean it, it must have if they had been able to use the intelligence if they'd had the resources and if they hadn't been inhibited by those upper echelons having their own ideas about what It w- i mean would the war have been shorter
2: very good question it's the two frequently asked questions did german successes enable Um, them to make the war longer and did the Allies' ability to deploy ultra-intelligence from Bletchley make the war shorter? The answer to the latter is I think it almost certainly probably did the successes at Bletchley, particularly when deployed as David Kenyon, who you may have come across as the research historian at Bletchley Park, his book about uh, how Bletchley became an intelligence agency of its own and what it gave to the Allies so they knew what they were up against when they landed in Normandy. Things like that, I would say, certainly shortened the war. If the Germans had made proper use of some of these intelligence gems, would they... I don't, I don't think it would because by the time they tended to react favorably to Himmler, Goering, Kaltenbrunner, Schellenberg, Hitler, um, Ribbentrop and co. They tended to react very favorably towards cryptanalytical triumphs when they were winning. The cryptanalytical triumphs then having support from the upper echelons of the higher command got operational backing to be tra- translated into further cryptanalytical, further operational triumphs. So everybody saw how the wheel was spinning in the right golden direction. Mm. Um, once Germany started losing and once the information that was being brought to Himmler goering or hitler wasn't favorable then they just didn't believe them there was a description in one of the one of the documents i read um, uh, and the documents i read as i was saying earlier partly came from the ones held in the american national archives the majority of them was information and interviews done when the Germ- uh, when the americans went into germany at the end of the war and uh, a few years ago, declassified just the tip of their their archive, of tip of the iceberg, which was 29,000 pages of documents. And a lot of them were all, already out in various archive public domains anyway. Germany, Great Britain, a lot in Italy, Croatia, Spain, um, yeah, Moscow. Those are particularly hard to get at. Um, but in one of these documents, and most of them are in English and German, some I in I had help luckily with from foreign correspondent friends who are Russian and Greek and Polish um, who helped uh, uh, me with particularly difficult um, translations. And in one of these documents is a moment where the German uh, foreign office code breakers um Known for short as Purse Z, the department, come across uh, some information, they read into a code, they're uh, reading the neutral codes of Portugal, Ireland, countries like that. And very, very, very capable um female codebreaker called Ursula Hagen comes up with a couple of intelligence gems and she gives it to her colleagues and says, okay, this is for dissemination to, uh, to Goering today. And There's, again, noted on this particular document was basically nobody wanted to go and give Goering some bad news. So the information went in the bin. Similarly, there are incidences where the uh, Alagaminer SS and the Waffen SS, the General Service Department of the SS and the Combat Department of the SS, um, also intercept super information. And there's this great big thorny thing. OK, who's going to go and tell Himmler? And the answer is, <laughs> nah, let, let's, let's just leave it, pretend it didn't happen.
0: Oh, that's bad, yeah. that's
2: bad. Yeah. Um, and it's reading the amount of information that was, I mean, I stress... I'm not a mathematician, I know very little about code breaking and um, the more one discovers about history the more one discovers that one actually knows relatively little Um, and oh my main one of my main um, residual feelings after being based in the former Yugoslavia for 13 years as a foreign correspondent in Kosovo, Bosnia Serbia and other places was I left feeling um, I hadn't necessarily kind of found out an enormous amount of information i'd certainly systematized my ignorance um but um it was the same with 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 world war ii and and with german code breaking as i touched the very tip of the iceberg and i reckon i mean the book was three to four hundred pages long i was reading for each paragraph page of the book I was probably reading 120 pages of documents
0: um I think, but, it, I think a lot of our listeners will resonate with that the fact that you, you can just go down a rabbit hole and explore so much information and come back with one but then at least you have the credibility in your own you have your own peace of mind you have that integrity on the page don't you
2: well you what well, yeah, exactly it's the compulsion people often ask me am I you know what's the borderline between curiosity and interest? The answer is there isn't one, because the two are basically intellectually similar. Um, Once you start reading uh, the German signals to and fro about an attack on a convoy, you know, it's it's like eating cherries. You don't really want to stop when you know you can continue. And one of the chapters in my book is in early March 1943, when guided by their breaking of Allied merchant ships and naval codes, 41 U-boats gather in the middle of a storm south of Greenland in hideous weather conditions, knowing that two very large convoys, HX229 and SC122, which between them have 108 merchant ships, are coming straight into their path. And so the Germans form a an attack line of 41 U-boats divided up into three wolf packs known with typical German kind of love for chivalry and drama known as Daredevil, Harrier and Robber Baron. And these two convoys go slam bang into 41 41 U-boats and bletchley park this is march 1943 the allies have been reading into enigma um for a very considerable period of time in the middle of the battle and i follow it through the diaries and the operational signals sent by u91 one um type 7c but captained by a man called um, heinz vorkeling and heinz Vorkling on the 10th of march 1943 just as this action against the convoy is getting underway is the codes in the he's received instructions um on the 10th of march to change his short weather code book to make his weather reports so Bletchley Park suddenly in the middle of just before the, one of the biggest convoy battles in the North Atlantic are blind to shark. The code known as Triton that was used on Enigma, um, the encipherment system, which Bletchley called shark. And Bletchley have a blackout. Meanwhile, the Kriegsmarine know exactly what is coming at them and where it is. And despite the horrific weather. Um, you can imagine it, the middle of the night in 15 foot waves, south, 400 miles south of Greenland. And it's a massacre. It's, um, you know, it was described by the Germans as the greatest convoy battle of the war. And only then, by mid-March 1943, did the Allies really sit down and have a think and thought, our codes were compromised. they've been reading into our codes all along and it was only march 1943 that 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 actually happened then they carry out an enormous retrospective uh, appraisal of incidents when their codes could have been compromised and of course this is all documented. Documented by the British and it's documented by the Americans. The British, of course, don't want anybody really to know that this is going on. The Admiralty are quite rightly rather rather sort of edgy about this. The Americans are rather quicker to broadcast the information that um, this is what's been been going on because you know, American crews on American merchant ships are going to the bottom of the Atlantic with the same speed and demise as Royal Navy warships are, and the retrospective analysis of um, of how the Germans had been doing what they were doing and reading into uh, naval and uh, merchant navy codes properly only takes place in the middle of 1943.
0: So, so that's interesting. In when we when anybody mentions Bletchley, I think the ne- it's like word association. The next word in the sentence is usually Enigma. Did did the Germans discover that Enigma had been compromised at the same time, roughly around the same time? What did they do about it?
2: The German um, Wilhelm Trana and one of the army. Um, cryptanalysis um fenner uh, assumed that if they were using machines then then of course the allies were going to try and break into them and enigma the enigma machines physically were given to so many embassies so many army units so many air force units Everybody had one. So you couldn't, it became too, in the middle of war, it became too operationally difficult to replace the system. However, they could make the encipherment system on it, the number of rotors, how often the codes were changed, infinitely complex, which is what they did. And they they had a few inklings that it was broken because the interesting enough at the beginning of the war um the poles you know from who'd had the earliest successes against the german enigmas um the polish some polish code-breaking officers some cryptanalysis signal officers from the polish army were captured by the germans as they fled poland heading for czechoslovakia and under questioning, these three Polish officers told the Germans that uh, Enigma had been um, had been compromised. But as I say in the book, the Germans who they told it to didn't know enough about it to do anything with it, and the Germans who could have done something about it didn't know. The Germans who did know or did suspect were either not listened to, like Wilhelm Trano, who always said, you know, we've got to keep changing the way in which uh, the codes on Enigma, we've got to keep changing our weather books, keep changing the number of rotors, keep changing the permutations, um, because the Allies, you know, they'll be doing exactly what we're doing. And just because, you know, we haven't picked up the fact that they are definitely doing it. We've got to assume they are. But he wasn't listened to. Um, And that, again, was another difference between the British and the Germans and the Americans, the Allies of the Germans, is Churchill listened to pretty much everything that Bletchley said. Mm. The same cannot be said for the upper hierarchies of the German leadership who just didn't listen a lot of the time to news they didn't want to hear.
0: Christian, the... The perspective, the alternative perspective is absolutely fascinating. Um, And I think anybody who does read your book will sit down sharply afterwards and realise just what an impact um, both understanding both sides of code breaking should have on our interpretation of of the events in, in the Second World War. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute privilege.
2: That's very, very nice to join you. As always, the book's called um, The Third Reich is Listening Inside German Code, breaking 1939 to 1945, published by
0: Osprey. And We'll put
1: it in our bookshop along with Anatomy of a Massacre. Just remind everybody about Anatomy of a Massacre.
2: Anatomy of a Massacre to be published actually on 26th of April, uh, very shortly this year by the History Press. The inside story of how one Waffen-SS division in Germany got away with massive war crimes and how for 75 years after the war the killers evaded justice and how the survivors of this massacre in one small Italian village is still alive today. Okay. Told me the story and the next one is the inside story of uh, how the Holocaust, the final solution, worked or didn't work in italy how so many italians escaped from it how a lot were deported to concentration camps with a lot of information on cracking of signals what the allies did or didn't know about the ongoing holocaust
0: that is going to be a surefire invitation for you to come back and tell us all about it
2: thanks very much always a wonderful privilege to come and talk to to you all and congratulations for all you're doing particularly this time
1: There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month, and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year.
2: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org